Uh, you all may be seated. Um, and I should also mention we are doing communion this morning. So if you haven't gotten the element, um, make sure you do that. They're in the back. So um, I'm super excited to be continuing this journey following in the footsteps of Jesus with you all this week. Um, and so last week we kicked it off, right, with Pastor Dave. We looked at Peter's willingness to kind of leave everything behind as he followed Jesus. And we sought to make a similar commitment as we started our season of Lent, looking towards Easter. In fact, many of you made a commitment on Lent to take these next 40 days to really intentionally follow in the footsteps of Jesus. This week, we're going to be looking at Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000. And this passage is probably familiar to many of you, and that's actually something that's a little bit challenging with some of these passages we're going to be looking at is because a lot of these are the typical stories that you hear time and time again in Sunday school, you know, as a kid growing up, like with the felt board, you know, I had the felt board going on. In fact, my mom, who's here with me this morning, she was the felt board master when I was in elementary school. She was the master, yeah. So um, those these are the stories that you learn time and time again in Sunday school. But this morning, we're going to not just look at feeding the 5,000. We're also going to look at some of the passages surrounding it, because by doing so, we can better understand the miracle itself. So, we're going to read Luke 9, 1 through 17 in its entirety, even though only part of that is the actual miracle. So, again, that's Luke 9, 1 through 17. And he called the twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And Herod sought to see Jesus. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. 
And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is the very word of God. So this morning from this passage, I've got three challenges for you all. And the very first challenge is this. It's emulate Jesus. And we're going to look at verse 1 and 2 again. He said, Summoning the twelve, he gave them power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases. Then he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So Jesus gave the disciples authority, right, some of his own authority, in order to expel demons and heal diseases. And he also sends them out to use this authority as they proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is a big deal in Luke's gospel. In fact, I went online. I love technology when it works, right? So I went to BibleGateway.com, and I typed in kingdom of God in the search bar, and I just looked at what the results were. So the phrase kingdom of God occurs in the book of Luke 31 times, which is more than all of the other gospels combined. So Luke is big on this whole kingdom of God um, topic. And it's this kingdom that Jesus commands his disciples to proclaim. But now if you jump down to verse 11, Jesus does this. When the crowds found out they followed him, Jesus welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who are hurting. So Jesus does exactly what he commands the disciples to do. Or, if you word it even better and flip it, the disciples do exactly what Jesus models. Right? Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God, Jesus is healing those who are sick, and the disciples do the exact same thing. Even in this stage of Jesus' ministry, the disciples are being molded into miniature, albeit imperfect, right, miniature Christs, right? And in fact, that's what the word Christian means, as some of you may know. Like, Christian literally means little Christ, and that is what early believers were called. And so something I've learned as a parent is this power of modeling, this power of emulation, whether that's accidental or intentional. Like, it's amazing and a little scary how quickly my two-year-old daughter, Naomi, picks up on things, right? Like, the other day, like, Naomi was eating cheese and crackers, I was eating cheese and crackers, and normally she eats them separate, right? She, like, eats the crackers, then she eats the cheese. But I was also eating them, and I was making, you know, a little sandwich, you know, and I didn't do anything, but she just started doing that, right? And I wasn't even trying to, like, teach her anything, you know? But a slightly funnier example is my dad has this thing, it's kind of funny, whenever he drinks really good coffee, under his breath he goes, it's good, 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 right? And so, and so what's really funny about that is I picked up on that, like I started doing it to kind of make fun of him, but now I've picked up on that, so I do that, right? Now my wife does that, Chelsea does that. And the other day, Naomi drank, I don't know if it was water milk or whatever, because we don't give her coffee, goodness knows. And, um, and she took a drink of that, and she goes, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. So, and on top of that, as my mom informed me this weekend, apparently my dad has his whole office doing it now also. So, modeling is very powerful, especially those of you that have had kids. You do something, and whether you like it or not, your kids are going to pick up on it. And so Jesus models for his disciples what they should do, and should continue to do when he eventually ascends back into heaven. He's preparing them for when he's not there anymore. 
And as we know, because, you know, we have the benefit of the full story, right, the disciples do go on to model and proclaim the kingdom of God. And their goal of proclaiming the kingdom of God is still our goal today. And when people... just project. Can you all hear me? All right, now I'm back. Cool. I was going to say, I work in children's ministry, so, you know, if I have to talk loudly, I can, right? Yeah. So when people look at our lives, they ought to see Jesus. And, you know, like, it's like Paul says in his letters, follow me as I follow Christ. And how great would it be if we could confidently say that as well? Follow me as I follow Christ. So that's our first challenge, is, is emulate Jesus, copy Jesus, model Jesus. Our second challenge is to know Jesus. And this is where we're going to camp out for a while. So let's look at verses 7 through 9 again, because they're kind of odd. Like, they seem a little out of place, right? So let's see what they have to say. Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. He was perplexed, because some said that John had been raised from the dead, some that Elijah had appeared, and others that one of the ancient prophets had risen. I beheaded John, Herod said, but who is this? I hear such things about. And he wanted to see him. Okay, so like I said, this seems like a weird place for Luke to put a side note. But when we look closer, it's not really odd at all, right? Especially if you believe that, you know, the Bible is God's word, right? We should have confidence that things are there for a reason, right? So this work of the disciples that Jesus, that Luke reports, you know, the disciples going out, proclaiming the kingdom of God, was enough to get Herod's attention, right? One of the local rulers. And he asks the question that many people have asked throughout all of history, which about Jesus, which is, who is this, right? And so Luke puts this question into the mouth of Herod, right? Quotes this from Herod because it's going to grab the reader's attention. So like, When we read this, and especially when the first readers of Luke would have read this, they'd have said, this is in the the ruler's mouth. This is an important question. Now, we get the answer to this question if you look at verses 18 and following, which is where Peter proclaims, um, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? Or you're a Christ, the Messiah. But I would love to look at that. However, that is the sermon that Pastor Dave is preaching when he gets back from California, So I'm going to try not to steal his thunder, right? But I do want to note that if you look at it, Herod asks the question, who is this? We get the miracle of feeding the 5,000, and then we get the answer to the question. So it's a nice little sandwich, right? And so feeding the 5,000 actually becomes key in understanding Jesus's identity as the Son of God. The miracle answers the question of Jesus implicitly, Right? Not obviously. And then Matthew is the one who answers the question, obviously. So, one, there are no explicit Old Testament quotes in Luke, or in this part of Luke, but there is certain intentional imagery. Because 
you know, I'm a big fan of the Old Testament, right? That's what I'm getting my doctorate in. So I, I can't just talk about the New Testament. I have to slip in the Old Testament somewhere. So listen to some of these Old Testament passages, and you'll see some of the imagery that's carried over into this miracle. So in Second Kings 4, 22 through 24, it says, A man from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this food before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Sound a little familiar, right? And um, God works through Elisha to feed a hundred men with 20 loaves of bread, and they had some left over. But, as, but what this miracle is saying to the people who would have been familiar with the Old Testament is Jesus fed more people with less supplies, and there was still leftovers in abundance after everyone was full. You see, Jesus isn't just as good as Elisha, right, or Elijah, or just as good as one of the prophets of old, like Herod was asking. Jesus is better than all of those Old Testament characters, even the ones that did these amazing miracles. Or if you look at Exodus 16, 4 through 5, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Now, Luke doesn't make this connection to manna specifically, but John does in his gospel. Because, in fact, this miracle is the only miracle besides Jesus' resurrection that is in every single one of the gospels. And John says in his gospel, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. In other words, right, Jesus says, your ancestors ate manna, right, and God provided for them, but they still died. But I am not, I am the bread from heaven, but I'm not the, a bread from heaven that you will partake of and, you know, satisfy yourself physically. I am the bread of heaven that will satisfy you spiritually. I am the bread of heaven par excellence. I am the best bread of heaven. I am the fulfillment of what manna pointed to. I am the true manna, right? So another Old Testament fulfillment that the disciples and those watching might have known. And finally, he, um, in Psalm 78, 19 through 20, the psalmist is quoting the people in numbers when they're complaining as they so often do and it says they spoke against god they said can god really spread a table in the wilderness true he struck the rock and water gushed out streams flowed abundantly but can he also give us bread can he supply meat for his people and jesus answers these questions from psalms with an abounding yes god can prepare a table in the wilderness he can provide them with bread and how these connect, how this connects to the New Testament, is you see in verse uh, 12 of Luke, where it talks about a deserted place, or your translation might say wilderness, right? 
So if you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, right? But later down the line, when people, more people spoke Greek than Hebrew, they translated the Hebrew into the Greek. And if you look at that in Psalm 78, the word for wilderness, it is the exact same Greek word as wilderness in Luke. So when the psalmist asks, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? It's the same word in Greek as where it says um, they were in a deserted place or a wilderness. And so we see the expectation of God in the Old Testament is that God provides And Jesus fulfills that expectation here with overwhelming sufficiency in his provision as the prophesied Messiah. And so the disciples can make all of these connections because they are experiencing Jesus firsthand. They know Jesus, but they don't just know him head knowledge. They know him deeply, right? They're experiencing Jesus. And it's that knowledge that enables Peter to later say, You're the Christ, the son of the living God, as revealed to him by God. But that is why Herod, who is only relying on reports from other people, is still saying, who is this? I don't know who this guy is. Right. And so by putting Herod, the miracle Peter, Luke is drawing a contrast between Herod and Peter. Herod is relying on secondhand reports, doesn't know Jesus. Peter knows Jesus, is experiencing Jesus and is able to correctly identify who Jesus is through his experience and through the knowledge revealed to him by God. So, that leads us to an important question that goes with our challenge of, do you know Jesus, or do you just know about Jesus? Like, have you experienced his love and abundance and forgiveness and joy, or do you, like, know it's there, but you're just kind of, like, leaving the gift on the table? Right? Do you know the truth about Jesus because of what others have experienced? Or can you say, I know this is true because I've seen Jesus work in my life and provide me with joy and peace and salvation that I could not know otherwise. So that is a challenge for us. We need to model Jesus, emulate Jesus. We need to know Jesus and not just know facts. We need to have experiential knowledge of who Jesus is. And finally, we need to rely on Jesus. The last challenge is to rely on Jesus. In verses 11 through 13, it says, When the crowds found out, they followed him. He welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed healing. Late in the day, the twelve approached him and said to him, Send the crowd away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging, because we are in a deserted place here. You give them something to eat, he told them. We have no more than five loaves and two fish, they said, unless we go and buy food for all these people, for about 5,000 men were there. Okay, but like, put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a minute, all right? Because we get so used to Jesus' miracles that sometimes I feel like we forget to like, put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. Like, this is a lot of people. You know what I'm saying? Like, 5,000 people, 5,000 men, plus probably women and children, is a lot of people. And the logistical aspect of, like, how do we get food for them, right? Even if they go and buy food, they have to transport 5,000 plus people's worth of food from a village to where they are. You know, like, even the logistical aspect of this, like, how are your 12 guys going to carry that, you know? How many trips are they going to have to take? And, like, 
I don't know about all of you, but few things stress me out as much as being in charge of a meal. Like, it stresses me out. And, like, I don't mean just a little stress. I mean, like, I'll order 18 pans of lasagna for 20 people stressed. Like, just to make sure I don't run out of food. Like, I, it stresses me out. So whenever I read this miracle and I put myself in the disciples' shoes, I'm like, oh my goodness, would I have been stressed, you know? Like, and, and they, they say to Jesus, they're like, Jesus, we have five loaves and two fish. Like, that's all, that's all we got, right? And what does Jesus say? Have them sit down in about 50 groups, groups of 50. Like, those the disciples, I'd be like, what do you mean? Have them sit down in groups of 50. And the word sit down is usually a word that's used to describe, like, sitting down to a meal, specifically. So the disciples know Jesus is still planning on feeding all of these people when he tells them to sit down. And, you know, that just stresses me out, all right? But what I think is really important is that, in verse 15, it says, they did what he said and had them all sit down, which is kind of a throwaway sentence. But you think about kind of the amount of faith that had to take. You know, Jesus hasn't produced the food yet, right? But the disciples obey him and go and sit the people down. They are like, okay, we don't understand how Jesus is planning on feeding them, but he told us to do this, we're going to do it. And you know, the Bible doesn't say, I kind of like to imagine they're kind of like, doing it like muttering under their breath, you know, <laughs> you know, knowing the, knowing some of the other accounts we have, the disciples kind of like, I don't know what Jesus is going to, you know, um, right? But they do it, right? They obey. And then in verse 16, Jesus takes the five loaves, the two fish, looks up to heaven, blesses them, breaks them. And he keeps giving them to who? To the disciples to set before the crowd. You see, Jesus acts as the host, of this impromptu banquet, right? He blesses the food and he breaks it, which is what a host would have done in a, in a Near Eastern culture. But who does he give the bread to? He gives the bread to the disciples. Jesus doesn't give the bread directly to the people. He gives it to the disciples who give it to the people. The disciples still fulfill what Jesus had asked them to do, which is you give them something to eat. But the disciples' calling wasn't to produce the bread, Right? But their calling was simply to deliver the bread that came from Jesus. They, didn't, they did end up giving them something, but the answer didn't lie in themselves or in what they had. The one possibility they didn't entertain, if you notice, was they didn't ask Jesus for food. They said, this is all we have. We can go to the villages to buy food. But they didn't say, hey, Jesus, can you give us the food, right? The disciples needed to learn dependency on Jesus as they loved, served, and proclaimed the kingdom of God to the world. And just enjoy the beauty and the joy of verse 17. Everyone ate and was filled. They picked up 12 baskets of leftover pieces. Every single person there ate and was filled. And with the shortness of this verse, I think we forget the joy of this miracle. Meals bring people together. Like even in Western civilization, where meals aren't quite as important to us, there are few times where I've had as much joy as a meal with friends, right? 
And there must have been so much joy in this impromptu meal. 5,000 plus people being satisfied with five loaves and two fish. And furthermore, there's 12 baskets left over. And there's all types of, you know, ideas of why 12, right? You know, 12 is an important number in the Bible. But what I think is cool is 12 baskets is enough where each disciple could have had their own basket of leftovers, right? Which is crazy. And as we go through our lives, as we follow the footsteps of Jesus, we need to come to grips with the fact that we're not able to make this journey on our own. We need to rely on the Holy Spirit as we follow Jesus' model, as we emulate Jesus, and as we seek to love our community and point them to Jesus. After all, what our, what our watching world is looking for is not just us, right? But who is working through us is what the world is looking for and what the world needs. And so as we acknowledge our reliance on the power of God, we more effectively demonstrate how great our God is. Right? If we're people that try to act like we've got everything figured out and have it all together, what does that say about our God? It says that we don't, we don't need our God. right? So by admitting our reliance on God, by saying, I could not be doing life on its own. I needed Jesus. He gives me strength. He gives me joy. He gives me wisdom. By acknowledging that, we point people to something greater than ourselves, right? Something that people need, right? People don't need us. People need the God that works through us. So I always like to ask the question, whether I'm working with kids or students, what does this have to do with us? You know, what... So what does this book written 2,000 years ago have to do with us? Well, if you remember, the disciples were commissioned at the beginning of Luke 9 to proclaim the kingdom of God, right? Well, if you, if you jump to the back of Luke, right, Luke 24, 44, 40, 46 through 48, Jesus told them, told the disciples, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be, or must be, preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And then in a passage that is very familiar to you probably is Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We go to proclaim the kingdom of God just like Jesus did, emulating his, his example. We can do this confidently as we rely on Jesus, not on ourselves, and we can experience the knowledge of God through his word and how he works in our lives. So this week, rejoice that your strength is not enough. And that it doesn't need to be enough because we serve a God who is greater. And our God who worked miracles still works miracles in the lives of those who in humility follow his footsteps. In fact, you know, we look at miracles in the Bible and we say, oh, Jesus feeding the 5,000, Jesus healing the blind, Jesus exercising demons, right? But do you realize that the fact that the fact that you have been saved and your relationship with God has been fixed, that is a miracle, 
right? Like the fact that anyone is able to come before God and have their sins forgiven through the work of Jesus on the cross, that is a miracle. A redeemed person is a miracle. And so God still does those miracles. God is still in the work of redeeming people. And so God is still in the work of performing miracles. So this week, proclaim that truth. Proclaim the kingdom of God. Proclaim that God has worked a miracle in your life and that he can work a miracle in the lives of your neighbors, your family, your community as well. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, your word. Thank you that um, even 2,000 years later, you are still working miracles. Thank you that you have given us your word so that we can follow your, in your footsteps, that we can copy your model, that we can model our lives after you. Thank you that uh, we can know you, that we can read your word and we can have knowledge of you, that we can look at these Bibles in front of us and say, this is the very word of God lying before us. Thank you that, um, that you have given us your Holy Spirit so that we don't have to rely on our own strength as we live our lives. We don't have to rely on ourselves as we proclaim the kingdom of God, as we love other people, as we follow lives that are after you. God, help us to rely on you this week. Help us to model you this week. Help us to know you this week. And most of all, God, help us to love you this week and point other people to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.